Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Mattimore Cronin. And I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing the future of healthcare. With us today is special guest John Gouch. John is a health tech entrepreneur and founder of Preferral, a software company that helps streamline care coordination between physicians and specialists in America's oftentimes disjointed healthcare system. John, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, be uh, with you guys. Awesome. So I thought before we talk about the specific problems and solutions for America's modern 2018 healthcare system, we can put it in the larger context of history and how it's been to be a human, sick or healthy, throughout the course of what we've experienced up until now. And I was pretty interested looking into this because it hasn't changed all that much up until the last like 80 or 100 years. You know, in Neolithic times, we had a health, health a, a lifespan of about 33 years old. And that actually dropped during all the Greek and Roman wars and all of that and really stayed around that level up until the 1900s. Then it went a little bit higher up to, you know, the later 30s, early 40s. And up even until World War II, when President Truman actually called for national universal health care in America, it was only 48, the, the average life expectancy for a male. So now we are at 72 years old is the health span or the lifespan as of 2014. And it's predicted that the person, the first person ever to live to 150 years old has now already been born. So if you look at the chart of, of, of lifespan, it really has skyrocketed just in the last, you know, several decades. So I, I think it would be, be good just to note that things are pretty good now in the context of history, but what comes with a longer lifespan is a longer period in your life in which you're sick. So I think this is something that we've not really had to deal with where you know, 50 years, you're a more feeble type of person, which is why lots of healthcare companies are really focusing on the health span and how can we make someone who's 100 years old feel like people do now when they're 60 years old. So I think if you, unless you guys have anything else to add to the context, I think it'd be good to talk now about like the specific problems that America's facing today. I had a couple things that um, might be interesting to think about. So, so the one thing that I noticed about the the health or the lifespan of people over history is it seems like, at least the way I understand it, is it's so low because the infant mortality rate was so high. So mm. if you look at the average lifespan, and almost half of all infants die at birth then the overall lifespan is you know dropped the average lifespan across populations so you know we have these huge innovations like hey maybe we should sterilize our hands before um you know so taking open uh, before, heart surgery <laughs> yeah before you know these before birth or before any sort of surgery you know there's a lot of little scientific discoveries along the way that made healthcare better. So, you know, hundreds of years ago, we were basically trying to use alchemy and a whole bunch of other crazy things that seemed like they might work. And maybe there right. were, there was some truth behind some stuff, like some, some herbal medicines. And, you know, we, we've seen that there's at least some sort of effect in some herbal medicines, but for the vast majority of things that were practiced in the past, I mean, it's so archaic to think about. But, you know, like you were saying, over the past 50 to 100 years, we've had some really big innovations. So it's we see healthcare quality rising with technological innovation. Yeah, and, I mean, you know, that'll just keep going. One interesting point of that, how healthcare used to be kind of like alchemy, is that when Abraham Lincoln was shot, what they brought to his side immediately was mummy paste, which was real, genuine Egyptian mummy paste that they would put in his open gunshot wound as because it was thought to have healing powers because how else would mummies be so well preserved unless it had some healing powers? So it's, it's interesting how far it's come. And it's, 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 
easy to pat ourselves on the back and talk about how much great progress we've had. But it's also notable that it's the single biggest issue in the American political system right now. So people clearly are not happy with the status quo of what's going on with healthcare. So I'd like to ask John, from, from your perspective, given that we've been using the scientific method and making some great leaps and bounds and progress over the last several decades, why are people so unhappy with the status quo in healthcare? Uh, well, so I think I think it's worthwhile to separate the the issue of healthcare um, to distinguish the sort of art and science and practice of medicine, as well as from the sort of delivery of healthcare, and then also further separate it from the sort of uh, you know political political campaigning chip of healthcare yeah. um, from the actual issue of are uh, people receiving the care they need. Um, so so all of those things can sort of be separated from one another. Uh, but but just to rewind just a little bit about the point of increasing life expectancy and, and sort of the effect that, that has on the healthcare system. Um, it's, it's not just that people are living longer. The, the, the sort of, uh, you know, secondary effect of that is people are living beyond their working years. Right. Um, so, you, you know, if, if your life expectancy is 35, you're working until the day you die. It, even true if 55, but if you're living until you're 90, uh, you know, those 15, 20 years, you're not, you're not working. You're, you're basically just living out on resources that, that need to have been accumulated up to that point. Um, so, so all of those things sort of, uh, you know, add to the sort of complexity of, of the healthcare issue that, that we face today. Um, but in, in terms of sort of advances that have made, uh, it, you know, those are squarely in the realm of the, the art and the science and the practice of medicine. Um, and, and as a disclaimer, I'm, I'm not a physician, so I'm absolutely not an expert on, on, on these matters. But, um, you know, the, the talking back to Abraham Lincoln's time, uh, talking about the, the bullet and, and the sort of desire to get that out of his body. Um, well, he was, I mean, he was killed in, in the mid 18, 1800s, you know, 18, 1865. Well, anesthesia was only invented uh, not too long before that. So prior to the invention of anesthesia um, and the sort of wide adoption of anesthesia in medical procedures, every medical procedure had to be about 10, 15 seconds or as long as you could hold a patient down. You just got a um, couple uh, of swigs of whiskey and... Bite yeah, exactly. A piece of Hold wood. it down and try, and try and rip it out for ten or fifteen seconds because that's all you got. Um, and uh, you know, anesthesia is is uh, you know was a breakthrough breakthrough innovation in, in the practice of medicine, um, and and was pretty quickly adopted by the rest of the world. Um, but there have been other innovations that have you know come come to fore through the scientific scientific method um, that have been have been less quick to be adopted. And, and so there are, there are plenty of examples that sort of plague the healthcare system that we know what's the best practice that we don't do. Um, so, so the healthcare system does a, a radically bad job of adopting good ideas. Well, so um, what's an example of that? Uh, well, so a good example of that is uh, the World Health Organization recommends the, the sort of, uh, you know, average baseline C-section rate should be between 10 and 15 percent of births. Uh, but in the U.S., it uh, has actually doubled over the last sort of generation from 2000 to 2015. C-section oh. rate went from 12% of births to 21% of births. And, you know, has, has all that much changed in birthing over the last 15 years? Why the change? Is that uh, because and actually if you women look, don't want to go through the process of, of giving birth? Or, or what would be no, the No, in fact, many, many, many C-sections start with attempted natural birth, but, but often uh, then get moved to C-section, either for fear of the mother's life, fear of the infant's life, or um, often failure to progress. So hmm. baby's just not coming along quick enough. And and the, the sort of interesting thing about this issue in particular is that it's extremely idiosyncratic in terms of when C-sections are, are pushed for. So um, the, the rate of C-section in the U.S. as of 2015 is 21% of births. But if you look at the data across the spectrum, you've got idiosyncratic uh, rates between hospitals, so where you're going to give birth. Um, and some hmm. hospitals have rates as low as 7%, and some have rates as high as 70%. So, yeah, yeah, I've always thought like it would be super helpful to have a guide through your healthcare experience because like for me, you know, I had I injured my hand. So I went to the hospital and I got an infection while I was there. And so I had all of these different doctors and specialists coming to see me and oh, here's the infectious disease specialist and here's the ear, nose and throat specialist. And it, for me, it was just like I was in this dazed world of people coming in to see me and leaving and then I would get bills and I didn't remember like, oh, did I actually see this guy and why does he cost so much and does my insurance cover this? And it just seems like a whirlwind of confusion and misdirection and obfuscation and 
And uh, so I agree. It's not yeah. like the scientific methods problem. It's more a problem with the delivery and the, the system itself. So how did we how did we get to this place where where it's it's so it's so far from the normal supply and demand economic model of the rest of our society? I think, I think that's best approached by sort of acknowledging some sort of broad general themes that exist and have sort of created a system of of uh, of counter incentives or incentives against the sort of the stakeholder parties. Um, so the it's almost impossible to think about healthcare delivery in the U.S. without giving almost primary consideration to the payers and how healthcare is is paid for. Um, and so right now in the U.S., of course, we've got private payers, we've got public payers, we've got you know private insurers, uh, Blue Cross, Aetna, Cigna. Humana, et cetera, and you've got the private, the public payers, so uh, the Center for Medicare, so Medicare, Medicaid Services, Medicare, of course, for the elderly, and the Medicaid for uh, the sort of lower income population who, who otherwise wouldn't have access to, to private insurance. Um, and uh, you know, this this actually also actually brings in the question of okay, well, what's you know, what's the future of single payer? These, these sort of uh, very very hot button terms that, that are often um, thrown about, but uh, sort of insurance covered healthcare. Um, you know, where did that even come from? And it, it came from the early 19th century or the early uh, 20th century. So, uh, you know, we have insurance. Typically, it's per employer provided. Uh, so employer purchases a group policy from the insurance company. Um, but that wasn't actually a thing until World, World War II. Um, there were policies that you could personally purchase to cover work injuries. Uh, but often those were basically not to cover the cost of your health care, but just to, to reimburse your, your lost income. Mm -hmm. So people would purchase those to do dangerous jobs and that kind of thing. Um, and, and that was kind of the, the state of affairs. Then during World War II, uh, to sort of control wartime economy, uh, they, they basically capped wages. And, and as a, a way to incentivize employees to come work for your company, if you, if you weren't allowed to offer them more money, you offered them fringe benefits. And mm. that's when employer-sponsored health care came into the scene, employer-sponsored insurance coverage. Uh, they could offer that as, as compensation, and it, it, didn't, it wasn't seen by the, the government as, as wages. And so it so flew under the radar. Um, and now it's also a way to sort of compensate employees' pre-tax dollars as well. Um, but, you know, the, the, the sort of unanticipated consequences and effects start creeping in. So uh, your ability to change jobs is, is hampered by the fear of losing health care coverage, which is, is bad for consumers generally and broadly speaking. Um, and then sort of a heuristic that I think is, is good to sort of analyze these things through is that the power tends to concentrate upon itself. Right. Um, so if you... If you have power, you're going to use your, your advantage to basically to get more advantage. And, and, you know, we're seeing some of the later stages that meet the insurance industry right now. Yeah, it seems kind of similar to me to our education system, where it's not it's not being subject to the normal laws of supply and demand and private sector and, you know, giving the best solution at the most efficient price to the person who needs it the most, where instead it's almost like, because we have this system where you don't know exactly what you're paying for and you're just giving them some amount, which is your copay and you're subsidizing the other, the other people who might have a greater, might have greater healthcare costs than you do. And then, and then that leads to more healthy people dropping off because they don't want to pay these higher copay costs. And then it just sort of doubles up onto itself. So I'm wondering, like, what would a better model be? I mean, I know there's been a lot of talk about the single payer, and that's that is something that that Truman proposed back then. And I've heard other people talk about how, well, you know, single payer works in some countries, like, you know, Denmark and Norway, and but those are much smaller countries. When you look at a country as big as America, to have one single payer system is very difficult to make that work for everyone. So I've heard someone else propose, okay, well, maybe we have a single payer, like a government option. So anyone who wants can get this option, or you can also pay a bit more to get private health care. And that's something like, for instance, in Singapore and some other countries have that option. Um, from your vantage point, what do you think would make the most sense for, for our country? Yeah, so the, the, and the sort of these you know heuristics that you know I kind of I think are useful in, in sort of analyzing the state of affairs or where we could go and will be useful is that you know of course competition is generally good for consumers and and sort of competition implies the idea of being able to shop for your healthcare and and so that sounds counter to uh, a single payer system uh, except that sort of shelving single payer 
idea for just a second because I've, I've got definitely a lot of thoughts on that. That, yeah. uh, that that that's just the very beginning of the question where there are ten thousand things to sort of answer first. But in the U.S. today, still still sort of considering the state of affairs today, it seems like well, competition exists good for consumers, except that our ability to shop for healthcare is is totally non-existent. Right. Um, so if you if you want to if you want to call up a doctor's office and ask how much is it going to cost to do X, they pretty much can't tell you because they don't know. Um, the, the reason they don't know is because rates that they're reimbursed at with each different insurance company are are, are separate. A uh, provider negotiates their reimbursement rates with insurance companies individually. It's not a set number. Um, That's so crazy. Not only that, but the rates that they've negotiated are proprietary and are not allowed to be shared between physicians in order <laughs> to give the insurance more negotiation leverage. Because um, if you know, if you know, Doctor Sam got uh, you know fifty percent or one hundred fifty percent of Medicare um, and. You know, Doctor Smith over here is, is going to want that same deal. Um, and insurance, of course, from the insurance companies. Um, but sort of progressing, you know, as, as I said, it's kind of the the late stages of, of competition. There's been sort of um, you know regulatory or inertial inertia based sort of capture that has, has uh, totally eliminated the ability for uh, new entrants into the insurance market. You you basically can't start an insurance company today. Um, there there was a, a sort of long history of fly by the night insurance companies that cropped up, took everybody's money, and then ditched town. Um, and that, that sort of spoiled everybody on the idea of being able to compete in that sector. So, you know, regulations put in place that, that make it very, very difficult to do that and thus give a sort of oligopoly to the existing insurance companies. And now they're starting to attempt to consolidate, of course. So like in 2015, um, you know, the two big insurance mergers were announced. Both have been, have been struck down by the, the DOJ ultimately. But Aetna Humana attempted to merge. Anthem and Cigna attempted to merge. So you say single payer. It's like, well, is it, is it a single payer in the private market or the public market? Is it a single payer via monopoly? Or, or right. via, uh, you know, publicly funded healthcare. Um, but then, even considering the idea of, of, of single payer, a lot of the criticism often comes in the form of, oh, well, wait times are going to go through the roof. Look at the NHS mm. in the UK; it takes them a year just for routine procedures, all these kind of things. Um, but even that is, is looking at just sort of one way that it could be, and a way that's actually more analogous to the VA rather than to CMS in the US. So the NHS in in the UK, um, it's not just that it's government funded healthcare by a single payer; it's actually government funded. And then the physicians are employed by the system as well. Um, whereas if 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 a uh, you know a public option or a, a single payer um, option in the U.S. were to materialize today, um, it would pretty much just be on the payer side, um, almost almost certainly. Um, and so then the providers would still be uh, uh, basically contracting with the payer, but not actually employed by them. Um, and that's that's a, an important distinction. So um, you know people say, well, the, the VA is all this you know all these problems and stuff like that. Um, I actually think the, the analogy to, to education is a very, very interesting one because uh, CMS, I feel, has, has demonstrably done a good job of showing that they are different in their ability to operate efficiently than the VA. So uh, a, a very sort of yeah. analogy to be drawn is, is actually the charter schools. So huh. uh, we've got public education, right? But then we've actually got public funds going towards charter schools. And... Uh, and also just sort of a, to, to fold it in here, a lot of times when people are, are debating the issue of single payer, they're kind of talking past each other because there's fundamental disagreement on what the goal of single payer should be. Is it about care access or is it about care quality? Right. Two different, well, I feel two like... things that can be optimized for. Um, but, but just to sort of wrap up the analogy on the, the, uh, the charter schools, a lot of times people feel charter schools are for, like the point of a charter school is school choice. And, and that's a benefit, certainly, and, and a selling point, absolutely. But... Uh, a lot of times, also, the point of charter schools are an opportunity to basically run experiments to find better ways to do certain things. So if a charter school does a certain thing a certain way and it works really, really well, well, let's do that for the system, broadly speaking. And Medicare has, has sort of done that uh, with, with Medicare Advantage plans, which, which are basically privately managed factions of Medicare. Um, so Medicare says, we've got all this money. We recognize we you know, could be administered more efficiently. Hey, private companies, if you want to come in, we're just going to give you the cash. You administer it. Um, and if you do so profitably, you know, the cream is yours to keep. And then people get bent out of shape when they do so. And then they say, okay, well, now we're only going to give you this much. It's like, well, okay, well, uh, you know, maybe that's Medicare being shrewd, or maybe that's actually just them uh, doing a good job of making themselves more efficient by running essentially experiments. Um, sort of. Yeah, know. no, I agree. I mean, it definitely matters what you optimize for. And I think the analogy is good on a number of levels with the education system. For instance, with the education system, when people talk about universal college, like paying for everyone in America's college degree, most old school thinkers will scoff at that and say, oh, 
how are we going to pay for that much? And they think about it in the old brick and mortar, like, look at all those colleges and all the, and the dining hall. And it's like, no, 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 no. You're thinking about it in like the 1900s way of thinking about it. If you instead think of it by in the digital world where you can record every amazing professor, compile it into some, uh, you know, some free online portal where anyone can go through your choose your own path of education and learning from the best of the best that would get you not 100% of the way there for education. You still need your social education. You still need to you know, have these life experiences, but maybe it can get you 80% of the way there. And I think that with healthcare, it's the same sort of thing where if we, you know, I, I was listening to this one BBC podcast where they were talking about this company that basically creates these healthcare pods. And so imagine you go to like a CVS or a Rite Aid or whatever, and they have this pod and you go in there and you video conference with a, a healthcare professional and the healthcare professional listens to your symptoms and then it can say, okay, now take this, take this thermometer that's right here, put it on, you know, put it on your chest. Okay. Okay. I've got your readings. Okay. Now put on this and they can basically do 90% of what's done in a doctor's office completely remotely. And of course there's also these telemed where, um, you know, I know some people like in San Francisco, for instance, who they pay like 50 bucks a month to use some app that basically they can text with any health healthcare professional that they need in real time. You can also book appointments through there. And so I just wonder if our thinking about how to give everyone universal health care is too anchored in the way that things used to be. And it's not creative minded enough in the way that things could be. In the future. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't agree more. I mean, there's there's so much low-hanging fruit opportunity to, to basically decrease the cost of the system and, and thus make, you know, universal coverage or universal providing of, of access to healthcare much, much more viable. And there's low-hanging fruit all over the place. So so the number one cause of death in the U.S. right now is heart disease by a long shot. Um, and heart disease is primarily caused by hypertension. Uh, you know, again, not a doctor, so I'm going to get the nuance of, of how to phrase that properly possibly slightly off, but hypertension is, is one of the largest, basically, causes of death in the U.S., um, and it's massively underdiagnosed. Um, I think it's like one in three people in the U.S. actually have hypertension, and like less than half of it is diagnosed. And treatment of hypertension is cost pennies, the drugs are cheap, um, but it's, you know, it's just undiagnosed. So, um, you know, if we, if we did a better job of just managing that one, if we increase coverage and do that, then, okay, we've done a good job of cutting the death rate quite a bit. I mean, yeah. It's, it's and the, the number three uh, cause of death is doctor error in the U.S. Oh, yeah. So yeah. if you have, I mean, it's similar to like almost, you know, the transportation stuff where a self-driving car doesn't have to have a 0% death rate. It just have to, has to have a better death rate than humans do. And so that's mm -hmm. real. And the other thing that's interesting is that human doctors haven't had to go up against any possible challenger up until now. So I actually think that with these, you know, sort of AI doctors as an alternative, that might get regular doctors to up their game a little bit. And they might come up with new startups where you take the best, like a cybernetic collective of machines and human doctors and put it together in, in a way that's efficient and effective and has a much higher success rate. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, sort of in the immediate term, to, to just uh, you know massively leverage the the, the reach of, of individual physicians. There's a, a company that's that's been very very interesting to me. And whenever people say telemedicine, the immediate thing that comes to mind is Skype with your doctor. Um, but I think there are are sort of uh, better opportunities. So there's a company called Lemonade Health, and basically what they do is if you've got one of five very common ailments, you basically hop on Lemonade Health, answer basically a questionnaire. And then, you know, wait a couple hours, it gets reviewed by a physician, and then your prescription is waiting for you at the pharmacy closest to you. There's no need to spend the day going into the office, doing this kind of stuff, no need to wrap up insurance into this, you just pay 20 bucks. And, you know, a single physician can review 1,500 of these things a day. Wow. That's covering a lot of the common ailments. And that's great for consumers. So that's that's an you know immediate low hanging fruit opportunity, um, you know, enabled by technology, but that rethinks the sort of delivery of healthcare. Um, and actually, you sort of mentioned transportation. I think there's another analogy to be drawn about um, you know how we consider uh, how we think about the goal of, of single payer um, or universal healthcare coverage. Really, really more broadly speaking, in the U.S., um, we we tend to want to think about it as as necessarily being some sort of 
profitable or at least break even affair without thinking of the impact on the economy broadly speaking. Mm. So we do the same thing with public transportation. We we sort of mentally think, oh, well, we're just throwing all this money in this public right. transportation. Off the argument against it without realizing that okay, well, it doesn't need to be break even on the balance sheet of itself as a unit. But everybody gets to work that way. That's great for the economy. This, this lifts everything up. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it, the value is beyond just its. its yeah, own it's kind of like how we used to think of the too. news as something that was just a nice public service, and now that it's all about profits, we're living in this crazy fake fake news dystopia because everyone's trying to get as much money for their clicks, and news has to be profitable. Yeah, I think that that's actually a good segue into the priorities of America with our budget. And I was just looking at this a couple pie charts before our call, where I was looking at the federal budget of America versus the UK, because I've seen that the UK, I mean, first of all, the UK is very similar to America as far as where we come, you know, our roots and everything. And it's a good proxy to how America could be, although, you know, on a much smaller scale. And they have been ranked as having some of the best healthcare uh, in the world. So the UK spends about almost 20% of their budget on healthcare. And they only spend about, what is it, 5% on their military. Whereas the US spends 57% on their military. And then we only spend about 5% on our healthcare. So it's not it doesn't take a, a you know a brain scientist to, to see that our priorities are just completely different and I don't think that it's so inexplicable because if you read history and read about World War 1 and World War 2 it makes sense that we still see ourselves as the defenders of the free world and we need to spend all this money so that a China or a Russia or an Iran doesn't basically take take over everything and screw it over for everyone but I just wonder how much, like 57% is so much more than any other country. If we just took 5% of that or 6% of that, then we would be able to give all of our citizens enough health care. And like, I feel like if we just really efficiently ran things in the military, like if we didn't put so much money into tanks and ships just because someone's brother-in-law stands to make a lot of money by doing those deals, and if instead we were more like Russia and we focused on cyber security and you know space program and and uh, that kind of stuff then we could still be just as good of a place in in our defense but have a much better position with our health which as you say has all of these positive effects on our economy and our our nation as well do you think we can ever get out of this rut well you know i don't know i definitely um you know considering sort of military expenditure definitely gets beyond my my field of expertise It, it it certainly uh I've I've heard it said that people uh, that that basically it the reason it makes sense to do that and I'm not saying I agree with this at all but um, is that okay we're not in you know wartime right now but it would cost so much and be impossible to gear up in that time but that's why we have to maintain this massive military industrial complex but it does seem absolutely counterintuitive that we couldn't just divert those funds to like the immediate problem here at home and not only that but the this sort of immediately on the horizon one as well with the aging population um but then even just sort of thinking about the, the sort of economics of it intuitively the uh you know you think okay well what percentage of people are covered by medicare medicaid and it's going to cost just x times that to cover everybody well that's not actually true because right now we are already covering the most expensive folks so expanding it to hmm. the rest of the population wouldn't actually cost the intuitive multiple. Um, so, for example, the healthcare expenditure uh, per uh, person over the age of 65 in the U.S. is, is 19, about $19,000 a year. Uh, but the cost of healthcare per working individual is about $6,500 a year. So uh, it's an increase that's, that's uh, about three times higher. Um, so, you know, if we're already covering those, that cost three times as much it's not going to cost the same per individual to cover everybody else. Right. Um, and even, even in, you know, again, sort of bringing back to this idea of, of single payer, um, Medicare, Medicaid, although they don't actually cover a majority of the population, they're already covering the majority of the healthcare consuming population. So uh, over 60% of, of hospital stays are actually paid for by Medicare and Medicaid. So they, they already have a majority um, in terms of the, the healthcare spend. Yeah, and and as far as how else we can decrease our spend, one trend that seems to be popping up everywhere is the trend of preventative medicine. 
because in America, typically it's, you know, you're going about your normal life of eating a dozen cheeseburgers and watching a dozen hours of Netflix per day and driving around in your car and sitting on your fat ass at work. And then one day you get a heart attack and then you go to the doctor's office and then they basically do all of these last ditch emergency efforts because you have lived so unhealthily up until that point that there's only so much they can really do. And that leads to very significant costs. Whereas if instead we took more of a method where, especially facilitated now by the fact that lots of people watch around, walk around with smart watches, um, there are now pills that you can swallow that basically will test uh, your, you know, your, your different blood levels. And, and uh, there's another sensor that can measure your, your EKG. And, and there are all of these ways that we can monitor people's health in real time. But we have not yet at all as far as I know, integrated that into any sort of broad healthcare plan. And also the idea that you, that I mean, Apple has already started along this, but the idea that you don't just have everything that's relevant in your health records, like on your phone, in an app, that's able to be accessed by every doctor, no matter, how, no matter where you are. Um, it, it's amazing that we haven't done that yet, and I don't know how long it'll take, but it seems like that's inevitable when we look forward into the future of healthcare. And it's not inevitable, definitely necessary, so so certainly important to, to pursue. Um, these these sort of get to the heart of, of these sort of misaligned incentives that exist in healthcare. So um, another one of the massive considerations when thinking about the future of healthcare delivery is uh, what does the reimbursement model look like? Not even just considering who's funding it, but uh, traditionally healthcare in America has been entirely fee-for-service. You go to the doctor, they do a thing, you pay them for doing the thing. Well, that basically incentivizes more doing of things. Um, mm. Rather than more preventing of doing of things, uh, right? A, a doctor makes more money on a sick on a sick patient than a healthy patient is the unfortunate reality. So, what incentive do we have to make healthy patients? Um, the yeah, reality and, is that there aren't aren't too many. And I I completely agree with that. The rebuttal that I hear from some of my friends who are doctors or parents are doctors is that oh, but universal healthcare is going to be so rough on the doctors and. They spent all of this time and money getting their education, and now you're just going to basically slash their pay. So, what what would you say to that? Is there a way that we can, you know, keep our our doc? Because you know there is a shortage of doctors in America. There's only about something like two doctors per hundred people, or or something like that. Whereas in the UK and other, or, or in the OECD average, it's something like three doctors. So we are a bit low. How can we keep our doctors happy? while also keeping our citizens healthy? So I basically have three sort of thoughts or ways to approach that, that notion. Um, the first is that there, there are ways to correct the incentives uh, away from a fee-for-service fee structure um, and actually have been introduced by CMS as, as part of the Accountable Care Act. Uh, these sort of accountable care organizations you may have heard of that um, basically um, share risk with the doctors. So in, right now insurance companies hold all the risk and of course, pay out to patients. Where uh, a, a sort of increasing, uh, increasingly common model is to form an accountable care organization. It's called where the payer approaches a group or a network of doctors capable of meeting all the healthcare needs of the population of people, and they say, "Hey, look, doctors, we've got ten million dollars for this population of patients. We were going to pay fee for service, of course, but instead, we're just going to give you this chunk of money. You guys care for the patients, and if you come in mm. under budget, if you are able to keep them healthy to a certain level of standard for less than this money, that's yours as profit. Wow. If you go over." then that, you know, that basically comes out of your pocket. So the providers go at risk with the payer. Uh, and so that, that aligns the incentives to, to pursue preventative health care. You see this also with much, much larger uh, employers who have large group plans such that it's not just that they're purchasing an insurance product from the company, but they're basically fronting their own cash and just hiring an insurance company to administer it. Uh, so this is almost certainly what uh, you know, the, the Bezos, Bezos, Berkshire, Jamie Dimon consortium are, are going to be doing is, is taking their 400,000 employees, whatever it is, and basically understanding them as a risk pool and treating them as such and caring for them as such rather than just having a big pool of cash, which they pay fee-for-service. Um, so that's, that's yeah. kind of the first approach is, is correcting and aligning the incentives. Um, the second is the sort of acknowledgement that, okay, yes, we have a shortage of physicians right now, but the, how, the degree to which the, there's a physician shortage is the degree to which uh, is basically a function of how many patients a physician can reasonably take care of effectively. So we are seeing increases in physician extender uh, type roles. So nurse right now, it used to be you saw the doctor. Now, mostly in the primary care world, you see a nurse practitioner 
a nurse practitioner who works under a physician, and that's that's increasingly common. So, mm-hmm. um, an increase in the number of nurse practitioners who are working under a physician um, as, as physician extenders. And I, I think technology has a huge opportunity. Uh, there's a huge opportunity for, for technology-based physician extension as well, such that a single physician can can, can reasonably care for more patients and still provide the adequate level of care. Um, and then also the the other is that uh, you know, sort of the third way to analyze that is uh, basically acknowledging that that in in the U.S. we largely overconsume healthcare. We've got this sort of odd dichotomous contradiction where we you know a lot of people lack access to healthcare, but we also have over healthcare consumption. Um, and that, you know, that can be in the form of unnecessary procedures and unnecessary, uh, you know, orderings like the, you know, the, that, that very, very wide range of C-section rates, for example, um, or things that are entirely preventable. So if we, yeah. you know, if we had a culture that moved away from, uh, you know, sitting on our asses eating, you know, giving ourselves diabetes, then um, we could spend yeah. quite a bit less on, on that. I mean, that, that sort of touches on what I was saying earlier about how great it would be if you could have an AI doctor guide to basically be your advocate through your healthcare decisions. So imagine if, I mean, Watson is oh, already working on this, um, where basically Watson now is, they have just requested access to anonymized healthcare data for all of American citizens. So imagine if you have some ailment and your doctor recommends some prescription. Then you can just ask Watson in the same way that you would ask Siri, okay, what have been the, the uh, you know, results of people who have taken this medication with my ailment, maybe even with my genetic uh, you know, predispositions and everything specific to me, how have these people fared in the real world? And then you can decide what that is. Or, or you can see, okay, I have you know, these symptoms. What's the likelihood that I have a problem that would need to be addressed by an infectious disease specialist? And then with that information, you can decide whether it's worth it to actually pay to go see this specialist rather than having it all be up to the doctors, which like you said, with misaligned incentives, they get paid to do medical work. So people end up getting more medical work done than they actually need. Uh, I mean, it would be great to have some sort of guide. Yeah, absolutely. The, the sort of, uh, you know, very, very, uh, you know, well, again, we're, we're fairly slow to adopt good ideas in, in healthcare. So uh, I'll say the near to medium term opportunity for precision medicine and, and the growth of that is absolutely a, a great thing for, for patients. So the the, the, the available information for physicians to base their decision. You know, in, in the software and tech world, we've had Moore's Law to our, as the wind in our backs for a long time, but the number of transistors you can fit on any given chip doubles every 18 months. And that's sort of petering out. We're going parallel now. But um, in, in in the biotech industry, a similar thing is happening with the cost of, of gene sequencing. Um, so precision medicine and, right. and, you know, populate large amounts of data that's been essentially collected in these EHRs. We're able to analyze these now. We start folding that in and marrying that in with um, actually personalized recommendations based on understanding of your genome. Huge opportunity for precision and personalized healthcare um, without necessarily it being a massively, massively costly or burdensome thing. Right. If we could, if we could sequence every citizen's genome and do some serious data science about what sort of diseases the if we had everyone's healthcare records and everyone's genome sequenced and we just let an AI machine learning system have at it I mean we would have such incredible insights and you know people are definitely afraid of oh okay what if someone hacks that data you know it, it's it might be risky to have everyone's data available on some single server and I think there's there's definitely a reason to worry about that but I think we need to try to solve that either way. Yeah, and I think in, in terms of considering that risk, because that's, that's something that's highly relevant to our business, we, of course, face quite a bit of risk. We you know, have to be HIPAA compliant and, and go to great lengths to, to be HIPAA compliant, secure, et cetera. Um, the risk comes in two forms. There's the risk of actually exposing the patient's privacy, uh, but, but broadly and culturally speaking, the risk that companies often consider is really just the teeth that exist uh, by the, the ONC uh, coming in and, and finding people. Um, so that's, that's a lot of times why people uh, you know, pursue cybersecurity is not actually for, for patient privacy, but more for just the penalties of, of not actually doing right. a good job of that. Um, what, so what about the, so those are, these are, these are sort of, what about the more sinister risks of, let's say, you know, Russia creating a bio weapon after it hacks into the U S and finds out that 65% of Americans are susceptible to this one type of pathogen. 
Well, so I don't, I don't actually think they would need any data to do that. We, we already have very effective uh, bioweapons that right. don't actually require a deep understanding <laughs> of our own healthcare. So uh, yeah. I wouldn't actually see that as a, as a risk too much personally. Um, yeah. But, but yeah. Yeah, so it seems worthwhile. So then I just have one other question before we get into the worst case, best case, most likely scenario. So, you know, one of the broad trends that we see is obviously automation, joblessness, income inequality increasing. How do you see all of that affecting healthcare? So let's say, you know, in five years or eight years where we have very high unemployment rate, and most people, you know, the GDP of America is still great, but most people would not be able to afford paying for their own health care unless the government steps in. What do you how do you think that's going to play out? Do you think like the people are going to rise up and basically in the next election or the one after that will get some sort of single payer in there? Uh, um, you know, are they going to have to increase corporate taxes? Like, like are we going to need to get our spending in line? Like. What are we going to need to do, and how do you think it's going to play out given the trends of automation and joblessness? Yeah, I think it, I think it highly depends on whether we know what's good for us or not. Um, if if we have an increasing income inequality and, and fewer folks who are able to access uh, you know private health insurance via their employer, then we you know we either need to say we're going to cover them some other way, or we have to accept that a we're just okay with them not receiving coverage, which I think is unlikely, um, or b. Uh, except, you know, sort of tolerating that, that they're going to accept or access the absolutely most expensive coverage. So, um, for example, uh, the, the uh, Affordable Care Act greatly expanded Medicaid, um, but arguably didn't go far enough. So uh, when right. they created the insurance exchanges, um, they basically, in order to appeal to moderates, okay, people can list insurance products in the exchange. Um, there was going to be a public option that people could choose, but it was cut. It was cut from the bill before uh, it was passed, basically oh. to appeal to moderates. Um, and had they provided a public option, perhaps folks who otherwise wouldn't have an option would, would have greater options. Again, it's, it seems strange that uh, people who are opposed to the Affordable Care Act would, would choose to decrease the amount of competition. But um, I, I think basically Medicaid will need to be expanded if, if we are to be able, if, if the income inequality is going to continue to grow and the access to private coverage is going to increase. Otherwise, you have folks going to ER for things that uh, you know, can be treated for, for a much lower dollar. Um, that's, I think, basically a necessity and, and probably an inevitable one uh, on a step towards uh, a thing, largely single-payer system. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think we are making some good progress in that department, seeing where things are going politically. You know, all the people who support national health care seem to have just won in the midterms, whereas all people who opposed national health care seem to, um, you know, not win. So now I want to talk about the worst case scenario for the future of health care. And then we'll get into the best case scenario. So given the direction of where things are heading, what's the worst realistic scenario of what the future of healthcare could look like in America in, say, 10 years? So I think the possibly realistic worst case is that uh, the incentives basically collapse. So if we, if we, um, if we perhaps go too, too aggressively towards a system that uh, you know, physicians don't accept and then they will wait are going down, this kind of thing, and there isn't enough incentive to become physicians. And um, you know, either we don't get to a place where people have access to the healthcare they need, or we get to a place where they, in theory, do, but there's no one to actually treat them. Um, hmm. And so that's that's a, I think, a realistic sort of worst case scenario that, that there's there's sort of organic collapse. Um, so I think it'll be a delicate transition. But um, yeah, yeah. What's what's your answer, Justin? I think Justin is is frozen at the moment, so I'll give my answer. So I I pretty much agree with you. I think that if we continue along the lines of the healthcare pharma complex, similar to the military industrial complex, where we continue to have, like you say, misaligned incentives, and if you combine that with income inequality and with people who are out of a job, can't pay for their healthcare, the worst case scenario to me is basically if politically there's a there's a gridlock for whatever reason, so we're not able to pass some form of expanding of the Affordable Care Act or some some form of national health care, and then we continue along these lines of, of misaligned incentives, then most people will not be able to pay for their own health care and will live in a world that is highly unequal where the people who have 
a lot of money can pay for great healthcare, and America continues to innovate because we have been innovators in healthcare technology, um, even though oftentimes those gains are just copied by the rest of the world. And uh, you know, I think that's just a world where it's a lot shittier for most people, but for some people, it's fine. And so that's the worst case scenario as I see it. But obviously, it can get much better. So for the best case scenario. For me, it's something similar to the way that airplanes run right now, where for most of the airplane flight, the autopilot does everything. The only part that you need the manual actual pilot to do something is, you know, taxiing, you know, some tough landing takeoff situations. I imagine that as being the best case scenario for the future of healthcare. And the way that we would get there is... So one thing I've heard I've heard suggested is if we have something like a like a president's plan where let's say the let's say the president of the White House can basically highlight all of the startups that are doing the best job in healthcare and then give them access to to public funds and sort of help these companies that are already doing a very innovative job helping them to grow and to provide a greater amount of services. So let's say like the US identifies the top telemed companies and they do a, a study of which ones are the most effective, which ones give the greatest possible reach to the greatest number of people, which ones give the greatest quality, all of these different indicators, and then basically allowing that to, to flourish and to grow so that people can have access through their phone, through their app, to anytime they need to talk to a doctor, they can talk to one. Anytime they need to make an appointment, they can make an appointment. Anytime they need to get meds, they can get meds. And then we still would have the manual human doctors if you need to actually get a surgery. But by preventing better preventative medicine and by tracking what's going on in your body uh, throughout your daily life, and if even we combine additional things like having some sort of a, you know, a scanner, like an at-home scanner. So if you ever need to get an MRI or, or anything like that, you can also get that done. If we combine that with our experienced doctors, then it could be more efficient, more cost effective, and it would be something that the government would be able to pay for entirely. And if we pay for it entirely, then I think our whole nation will flourish. And it's another question of what that means a hundred years down the line. Because I think at that point, our lifespan will be so much greater that the costs will be a lot higher. I mean, what does the universal part or, and, and healthcare part, what do each of those words actually mean? Like, does everyone get it? And for how long? Like, what if people end up living to be 500 years old? How do we pay for that? So I'm only talking about the best case for like the next 10 years. But um, yeah, anyways, that's my 10-year best-case scenario. It gets a little trickier as you go out further. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think best case for me is that uh, we you know we see orders of magnitude increases in the efficiency of, of the delivery of healthcare and the access to healthcare. That it, it becomes more like shopping from Amazon than going to the DMV. Um, if it, you know if it could go in either direction, and and then also we see orders of magnitude increases in the ability to adopt uh, you know in, innovations and improvements in the sort of art, science, and practice of medicine across the healthcare system. Um, so the, the better we can mobilize those and, and give access to those, uh, it will, of course, be better for, for everybody as a whole. Um, so that's, that's what I'm hopeful for. Can you guys hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you. So oh, what's your worst yeah. case, best case, Justin? So so I would, I would echo a lot of what you guys said for the worst case. Um, it sort of will get to the most likely, but I think the worst case is actually closer to the likely case, at least in the U.S., because I think people are probably more likely to stick with the status quo, status quo, but hopefully, you know, we have all of these awesome startups coming along. We just need to make sure that policy makers can actually adjust with the technological changes, because they're ultimately the gatekeepers. So anyways, the for the best case, I so similar to what we were talking about earlier, healthcare quality can improve with technology. And one of the people that I really follow in this space is someone called Peter Atia. He's a he's a physician. I think he's actually in your neck of the woods, John. Uh, I think he's in San Diego in New York. Um, but he talks about how with more precision measuring in techno, uh, so. 
in healthcare if we can measure things more accurately and at a more um, precise level, we can detect things like cancers, heart disease, hypertension at way earlier stages than we can even conceive of right now. And we can have sort of this technology in our pocket that is always with us and can and we can really take advantage of these um, advances where you know a doctor's ability is scaled to almost unbelievable levels um, and then the other part of the best case is very similar to what you were saying I love what you were saying because I'd never actually thought about that earlier you know I've never thought about the actual solution or how it might actually be implemented um, so that's that's a huge part of the best case scenario. And then the last thing is, you know, with all of these new technologies, let's say we have some sort of sensor in our body. Maybe this, this is definitely beyond the 10-year period, but we have something in our body that can basically read our blood levels in real time. Because right now, our readings come, I mean, at most for wealthy people that really care about their health once a quarter. They're getting blood markers read every quarter, let's say. Now, your blood levels change drastically throughout the day, whatever, you know, whatever you're measuring, especially something like glucose. But if you can have more precise and more real-time data on yourself, then you can truly figure out what the best healthcare and what the best um, lifestyle is for you. And we can truly optimize preventive medicine and we can expand our health span. So a lot of people talk about lifespan, you know, how long are we living? But what I think matters is our health span. So if we're, let's say we live to 150 years, but we're only healthy for 80 of those years and the rest of, you know, 70 extra years we're alive, but kind of in the state where we're sick all the time. I don't know if that's any better than just living to 80 and being sick for 10 years in, or being sick for zero years if you, you know your health span mm -hmm. is 80 and your lifespan is 80. That seems almost optimal rather than expanding lifespan all the way you know, to 150 if you're not going to be healthy for a lot of this. Do you guys, yeah. do you guys think Sorry, that, but... I was just going to say it made me think of something where, so like imagine if we get these push notifications basically so oh, your, your levels are a little bit off today. We recommend that you take this test at home or, or see this doctor. You know, imagine if you're getting those. Something I just thought of is, do you think that's going to turn us into people who are much more relaxed because we have this, this safety net that's basically monitoring us? Or is it going to turn us into techno-hypochondriacs where we're always <laughs> like one, <laughs> freaking out about if we're getting sick? Because I could see it going either way. I mean, maybe it just comes down to what type of personality you have. Yeah, I think I think best case it coincides with sort of cultural shift where we care about our healthcare more, um, but mm. but do so in a way that actually you know is uh, isn't misguided and misdirected, so that we're not we're not doing things that we feel are good for our healthcare, but things that actually are good for our healthcare. Um, and and I think those are you know, you know the sort of cultural shift of, of people caring about their healthcare is, is going to be a necessary component of uh, sort of some broad improvement in the healthcare system. Yeah, like you have a big night of, of binge drinking with your friends and then you you get some like alerts on your phone, like your liver liver levels are, cr are critical and it, or, or you like go have like a yeah, really like fatty meal and you're like, oh my God, my I've got so much salt in my blood right now. And that might be good. I mean, because right now it's kind of just like behind this veil of you're like, oh, I really shouldn't have done that. But you don't really know how bad it actually was. And, and uh, so I think, yeah, I mm -hmm. think it will overall be good, but for some people it might make people more hypochondriacs. Mm -hmm. um, but anyways, John, what's your, yeah. what's your most likely scenario? Mm, most likely, you know, actually I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to err on the side of optimism in this case. I'm going to say most likely that we, we continue to see broader improvements in, in the quality of care. Um, but that, that does, the care does become more accessible and that, uh, you know, folks do make attempts. So, so certain things that do give me hope are um, the Bezos Consortium, right? They're going to go after uh, very low-hanging fruit. Atul Gawande has been appointed as the head of that. And he's, he's a very smart guy who has very good ideas about population health. Uh, uh, Kaiser Permanente in California, they're doing uh, some very interesting things as well. Actually, you know, so they, they basically have a very, very large 
um, healthcare system that also acts as a payer, and they are also opening a medical school, which is just massively interesting. Um, so they're sort of going full stack in terms of the healthcare delivery. Um, so both of those things give me give me a good amount of hope in terms of the direction that we're going. Do we have any sense of when Amazon's healthcare solution would be available? Because I know right now they're pretty much just focusing on making it up and running for all of their employees. Uh, do you, we have any idea when when they might be able to provide that? Yeah, it's because that that does give me a lot of hope. I mean, the way that they've been able to manage the logistics of essentially America's entire brick and mortar economy through Amazon is pretty impressive. So if we could do something similar with healthcare, that would be great. For for my most likely scenario, I think that in the next election, the next presidential election, whether it's Democrat or Republican, I think in either case, they are going to put a healthcare bill and pass a healthcare bill and that it will expand healthcare or maybe replace it or maybe improve it or whatever. It's going to in some way enhance what we have already. The question is, how much of an enhancement that is. I think when we talk about most likely with any sort of major bill, there's gonna be lots of earmarks and there's gonna be lots of things that we would wish weren't on the bill because they're gonna get extra profits. And so I don't think it's gonna be like, I think it's too rosy-eyed to think of this as like, oh yeah, in four years or eight years, we're gonna have great universal healthcare. But I think I agree with your optimism and I think it will be marginally better and I think there's also going to be another wave of progress once the automation and joblessness reaches a, a critical point. And at that point, people are going to simply demand that we have better access to healthcare. And maybe that critical point coincides with Amazon finally being ready or, or some other player having a much better solution. And at that point, we can sort of go into phase two of like a digital healthcare system that really works for people where they can get what they need. They know what they're paying for. So I think that's, uh, yeah, that would be my most likely scenario. And just to add to what I was saying earlier, you know, with <laughs> it seemed a little pessimistic. So when, when I was talking about the likely case, I was talking a little bit more about this election cycle and maybe the next, depending on if somebody gets reelected. Um, but after that, you know, there there will be a time where we see more technologically savvy and more, um, well, just a different philosophy get into the political realm and passing bills. So longer term let's say 10 years plus i think that we're going to truly just there's nothing we can do we can't ignore the technology anymore and that's when i think we'll see these awesome advancements i agree so do you have any final thoughts anyone on any advice for people who are deciding how to deal with their health care or maybe people who are stakeholders in the healthcare system how they can help bring these trends to the front or any other final final thoughts for our listeners? I, I think I think if I had one final thought, it's it's that uh, you know as we think about all this in terms of um, sort of a systems approach, I, I think it's important not to lose the perspective that fundamentally healthcare is, is uh, sort of the core of the human experience, um, and that we you know we need to make sure not to lose the humanity that exists in healthcare, um, or, or to overlook that. Yeah. I'm with you. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been the future of healthcare. We're going to talk about what has happened, what is currently happening, and what will inevitably happen. The past, the present, and the future. A computer.